Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Modern creative teams are pulled in a thousand directions. Maintaining a functional project plan is hard. Wrangling designers and writers, copy edits and clients, all on deadline, can get messy fast. Most collaboration tools aren't made for creatives and creative projects, but Airtable is. Airtable makes it easy to organize stuff, people, ideas, anything you can imagine. That's why leading creative teams at places like Experience Design Agency Huge, Product Development Agency Planetary, and retail brand United Colors of Benetton use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule and let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com glossy today to get $50 in free credits. Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy Managing Editor, Hillary Milnes, and joining me today is the Executive Vice President of Brand Marketing and Communications at Alice and Olivia, and the author of Leave Your Mark, Aliza Licht. Thank you for joining me, Aliza. It's a pleasure, Hillary. Good yes. to see you. Yes. So we're actually in Miami on site at the Glossy Summit. We were just chatting on stage about authenticity in marketing. So you're- Then I should probably not say good to see you because I already saw you. Yeah. Today. I know. <laughs> Good to see you again. Uh, Good to see you again. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we've been hanging on Miami, but you are, you've been practicing authenticity and marketing for, for a good amount of years now. You know, I, I've been trying. I, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think it depends on your nature. I've always been someone who, even growing up, my friends would be like, do I like fat in this? And I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, actually you do. So, you know, it is it is my nature to be direct and sincere. And I think that I have been able to bring that through um, doing brand marketing mm-hmm. over the years. So, so a dose of honesty. A dose of honesty, but I always like to pepper it by saying – there is TMI, right? Mm-hmm. So you never want to sort of air your dirty laundry as a brand. You definitely want to be authentic while at the same time not ruining your reputation. So I think there is a level of authenticity um, that's charming. You know, it's okay for brands to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay for brands to apologize sincerely. Um, but at the same time, I think it needs to be sort of strategically planned so that you're not sort of digging yourself into a deeper hole if you make a mistake brands are so afraid of making mistakes because they can really be taken out to dry on social media it's scary outrage is real the outrage is real and um when things go viral you know you can't make a viral video as they Mm -hmm. say right Right. everyone you know management is always saying oh make a viral video it's like you can't do that right (laughs) however when you do not want it to go viral it sure will yes for all the wrong reasons but so you you first-hand experience you were the voice behind dkny pr girl yes when that started on twitter yes instagram wasn't even around yet um, in 2009, no, it wasn't. Yeah, well, at least not I don't as think so. No, it moved more. over. Uh, DKY PR Girl moved over. The second platform was Tumblr. Wow. <laughs> so com, and then it moved over to Instagram. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, it went to Weibo and other platforms. Mm-hmm. But um, Twitter was its main sort of home. And when were you like, okay, I think I'm really onto something here. You could tell it was kind of resonating in a way that other brand voices weren't in regardless of what, what 
campaigning or marketing that they were doing? Because I, you know, it was really early on in social media marketing in general. Super early on. I think, I mean, listen, I still remember 210 followers. <laughs> so um, I would say at 10,000 followers, I started to get a bit of heat. Um, there was an editor at a newspaper that shall remain nameless <laughs> who wrote a scathing email to my boss at the time um, saying that she was appalled that the Donna Karen brand would allow someone to speak online uh, in such a personal way and why would anyone want to hear about sort of my escapades having lunch with someone at Barney's or <laughs> whatever the case may be and um, you know I was lucky to have the um, history with management and certainly my mentor Patty Cohen uh, where they turn. They were like, you know what? Just keep going because it's growing. Yeah. And there was nothing that I was saying online that was offensive. It was more like, wait, you're not selling. You're not directly selling. Right. You're not talking about sale. It's not just like hand brand. Exactly. Aspirational exactly. Message. And um, you know, so I stuck with it. But I don't know if I didn't have that support, it probably just would have gone away. And I feel like even today, a lot of brands aren't getting that support from executives from management to experiment on social media. I think it's hard because a lot of brands have management who have never been on social media. Mm. So when you when you try to sort of reverse mentor, right? And you try to explain, I mean, when I was beginning in social, I mean, no one in the company knew what Twitter was. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people still don't know what Twitter is. They they know they it's a bird, right? Yeah. They see the bird, <laughs> but they don't really know. Um, and I think that, you know, unless you're sort of immersed in digital as a consumer, and that's where you're sort of getting your inspiration and discovering new products, um, you don't even have to participate necessarily, but you have to sort of be there um, to understand the power of it. Right. So will you just give us a, like an uh, overview of how the company was arranged around at the time where yes. you were able to build this Twitter persona online. It maybe you know, I feel like maybe some of it had to do with the fact that they didn't even really fully realize like what was even going on. But but like, did you have other people working on social media? Was there a budget involved? Sure. Who are you? Were you? Did you have to run tweets by people? So we had a marketing and communications team. We were separated in two different buildings, and which wasn't ideal. And we decided in a meeting one day that. Um, Marketing was going to handle Facebook, but Twitter was a bit of a question mark because everyone sort of knew, they didn't know what it was really like, but they knew that it had to be more of a conversation. Mm -hmm. And my fear as a publicist was that if we didn't handle it properly, people might think it was it was actually Donna herself speaking. And that was the last thing I wanted to happen because I didn't want someone's quote being attributed to her if it's mm -hmm. not her quote. Right. It wasn't even supposed to be like on behalf of her. No, it was not on behalf of her. Mm -hmm. It was really on behalf of the brand. So, you know, it was second season Gossip Girl at the time. <laughs> and I was like, well, what if we just have it anonymous and we have it represented as a fashion sketch and no one has to know who's sort of writing it or speaking to the consumers. And everyone sort of agreed that that was a good plan. And of course, my legal at the time was like, okay, Lisa, only one person can do this and that's going to be you. I need to know that it's controlled and it's not, you know, some intern going off yeah. and doing it, which at the time, there were a lot of instances of just like 
really bad social media crisis situations with interns or assistants or people who didn't realize that in fact they're being the spokesperson of the company Mm -hmm. by having that Twitter account on their phone. Right. So um, I had permission Mm -hmm. for sure. I they wanted me to pass every tweet by them and I said no way. It is not going to happen. You guys are in meetings all day. (laughs) I'm not going to wait for you to respond. I'm like, if you see something you don't like, I'll take it down. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what we agreed on. And that sort of the rest is history. Did you have to take something down? Um, I did have to take one thing down. One thing down. Um, I remember we were doing a Donna Karen lookbook shoot on a Saturday and one of my PR managers had rolled in from her college reunion and she was totally hungover mm-hmm. and so I tweeted something funny about her rolling in hungover and my head of legal called and she was like we can have underage followers you can't you can't write that and I was like okay yeah, fine, deleted it fine, that's fine, fine. <laughs> no problem <laughs> so do you ever do you still have a soft spot for Twitter as a, I as do a branding tool? I do I really it's do just like customer service you know I think it's customer service for brands who aren't that creative because I think that you can really you know I referenced it at the summit today um, you can really engage in a very high level way uh, with consumers on Twitter if you do it right like Pop-Tarts I, mm-hmm. I, I'm obsessed with that Twitter handle right now I read every single tweet because the personality is just so snarky and obnoxious and you're like but this is a pop tart it's (laughs) it's really really brilliant and I think I think that there's still um, a place for creative content on Mm -hmm. Twitter and I think you know for me especially as someone who works in communications I mean journalists are on there all day you Mm -hmm. know so I think especially for what I do for a living it's essential right and you have to wonder I wonder how many pop tarts are sold because of their tweets I just think no one paid attention to Pop-Tarts right. before. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I don't even eat Pop-Tarts. Mm. I mean, I would like to, but they're kind of fanning. Right. Um, <laughs> so I just think it's interesting when a brand or like the Wendy's um, yeah. Twitter account, I think when a brand is really clever, I think there's still a place for clever mm-hmm. in social. Right. And and even if it's not moving sales, it, it doesn't matter because if you remember that, it's memorable. You might think about that next time I think it's like ability mm-hmm. you know I think mm-hmm. that you know when we you know when everyone retweeted to help that kid get yeah. like free nuggets yeah it's like you wanted him yeah. to get that right like and I think there is a feeling of um I guess camaraderie you know even you know this year was the end of scandal mm-hmm. um and I think that anyone who watched that show and live tweeted that show and there were th- hundreds of thousands of people who did that including me there was this feeling of togetherness. And I think that Twitter is really has shown and actually in their numbers as well that they're great for live events. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's their niche. So what are your thoughts on a brand uh, participating in a in a Twitter moment? I think the Oreo dunk in the dark tweet is, you know, a brand, brand moment of history. But I think brands are always like, do we when do we participate? When do we interject? And when is it not a moment for brands to to actually have a say? I think the Oreo moment shows how important it is for brands to be nimble Mm -hmm. and you know I was a one-woman show for DKY PR girl so all I had to do was think it and post it Mm -hmm. and I was able to capitalize on a lot of real-time pop culture things because of that I think a brand as big as Oreo to be able to do that is 
so impressive. And I think you can see the results. People were completely enamored by it. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like the brand was speaking to everyone. So um, I think it's brilliant. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I think corporations, you know, get tons and tons of layers. But if you can find sort of this... Um, I guess you'd call it like this emergency core team, which we had a Donna Karen for crisis. We had a committee whereby if something happened online, these six people knew that they were immediately summoned Mm. and collectively we would make a decision as to how we were going to respond. Is that social media specific or any sort of like the website is down crisis? Uh, No, social media specific. Something that can get really out of control. Mm. And I think having sort of your crisis team in place is really important. Conversely, having a team in place that has the authority to make decisions and to capitalize on those moments is equally as important. Right. I think a big theme that comes up at, at our events, at our summits, is that more people in within a brand structure should, especially on the social media side, should be trusted, should be empowered to make those decisions. Do you think that that's shifting in that direction? Is that, is that happening more? Or do you think that, because I'm like the, the reverse side, I can't even, I can't think of a good example at the top of my head, but the reverse side of the Oreo tweet is, you know, any tweet that goes viral in the wrong way, like we were saying, and it's mm-hmm. happened. So that's like, you could see why they would actually even become less likely to, to give control to, to more people at within the brand. I think you have to trust who you put in control of these channels, no Mm -hmm. matter what the channel is. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, you also have to, no matter who you are, if you're a community manager for a brand, um, you have to also keep on that customer service and sort of publicist hat, if you will. Mm -hmm. Because I think what happens is a lot of times people... um, sort of get emotionally charged when they're reading something and they forget that it's a company that's responding versus the person who's responding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where brands get into a lot of hot water. Right. Because their their employees are human. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so obviously we've been talking about non-fashion brands, but for fashion now it's, it's, in, it's all about Instagram. Yes. What do you think is the best way how do you even be authentic on Instagram anymore when even not on the brand level everyone wants to make their Instagram look perfect they're putting out a lifestyle that maybe they don't actually have how do you actually relate to customers on the Instagram feed when it's so curated and and so perfection driven I think brands are really happy that Instagram stories came about because Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of brands are really treating main feed as more of their permanent library of beautifulness. And stories can be more of this place to sort of play and not be as precious. And, you know, knowing that you can give more of a behind the scenes view into a brand right. um, without the stakes being too high. Mm-hmm. And I think that brands are having more fun with it because there's not this pressure of perfection. Mm-hmm. Whereas on main feed, you kind of feel like, There has to be. Right. I think stories actually opens up almost for, I guess it's like spontaneous creativity because it's, it's 24 hours. It's not going to last, but you see like all this, these things on stories coming together. We mentioned polls, things like that. And a lot of just creative design because what's important about stories is that you can actually shop from them directly Mm -hmm. in a way that you can't on the feed. So how do you sort of like balance that like we want to inspire people to shop right there in that moment as they're tapping through a million stories but at the same time we don't want it to be as buttoned up as the feed itself 
Well, first of all, I think I think the algorithm, and I, I'm pretty sure this is a fact, I think the algorithm favors people who are posting um, more infrequently. Like if you're someone who doesn't post a lot of times a day and then you post, I think they do push that content up because they are trying to encourage you to post more. Right. Is that on the feed or on the stories? stories. Oh, okay. On stories. Um, I think I think right now the recommendation is four to five times a day max. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's a good, I always feel it's good to be eclectic, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have some posts that are sort of more brand awareness, maybe a celebrity wore something from your brand. Then maybe you have a sample sale happening. So you're going to want people to know about that. Or maybe you're having new arrivals on your website and you want people to go directly to that landing page. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's sort of, there are really no rules as far as like each story can be whatever it is and they don't have to connect to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, you know, Maybe this is just me, but when I was doing DKNY PR Girl, I didn't have a content calendar. I believed, and I and I made it very, very well known that my posts were in real time, unscheduled. Mm-hmm. So I am a human who lives in New York. So I had no problem being offline for a few hours when I was sleeping. <laughs> and the fans didn't care either because they knew that I was sleeping. Now, during the day, if I was offline for a few hours, I think some of them were going to call the police. But <laughs> um, I think there's something to be said for humanizing a brand on social. And I think that, you know, somebody today at the conference was talking about how they have their entire company pitch in um, and sort of contribute to social. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a really interesting idea by that brand, but part of me feels like I don't like it. And I don't like it because I don't believe that a hundred people can have sort of the brand immersion that a social media manager has or a PR person has or a marketing person has to be able to kind of know what that content should look and feel and sound like. So I think that, you know, listen, I mean, I work for Alice and Olivia. Stacey Bendett has a very clear filter on what that brand is. Mm-hmm. We do not stray from that brand filter. Mm-hmm. And she is so on top of every single piece of creative that no matter where you see it or hear it or touch it, it's always going to be authentically the same. Mm -hmm. I think if it's crowdsourced across your whole company, I think, yeah, your social media manager probably gets more sleep. But at the same time, I think it dilutes the brand unless there's some very extensive training on how to manage that Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how they build that in, especially for new hires. Yep. It'd be interesting to, to dig into that one uh, because it's because it's true. It's it's I think so much of the the problem around social media is how do you scale resources? How do you do a lot with little budget? Uh, and I feel like it's just the the amount of the number of platforms, the number of channels that you can post to and connect with customers on is piling up, and the budget is not correlating with it. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The creative world is constantly evolving, and to keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable is modern software. Its fields can handle any content you throw at them. Add attachments, long text notes, check boxes, links to records and other tables, even barcodes. Whatever you need to stay organized. 
That's why when the team at WeWork needed a tool to manage their entire creative process from ideation to content creation, they turned to Airtable. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Glossy to receive $50 in free credits. You know, I think we used to feel more pressure to sort of be on every new platform, mm-hmm. and I think we're over it. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I don't know if I can speak for everyone in fashion, but I feel that way about Snapchat because I sort of tried it. I could never really get into it. I couldn't even really get into it for a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to follow any brands. I didn't want to be on there. I also thought the UX was very strange and sort of not... Um, flexible mm-hmm. um and i and i sort of ruled it out and i and i feel completely comfortable not doing it right even for a brand and i think it's it's trending that way and i i think it's not shut down by everyone I, especially those brands trying to connect with younger customers but but when we say young i mean it's really young i yeah. mean my my 13 <laughs> year old i would say a year and a half ago so probably like between 10 and 11 was really obsessed with snapchat mm. Now the only reason he goes on Snapchat is to read the Daily Mail. Oh wow! <laughs> and yes, he reads the Daily Mail. That's that's an interesting use case. <laughs> <laughs> but he he doesn't. He's like no one. No one's on it anymore. Yeah. I mean, so it maybe it's even younger than that. Mm-hmm. Ugh, the nine year olds. Yeah. Gotta and I don't need to market to nine year olds. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't plant the seed really young. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's funny because we're definitely now in the era of like the the brand as friend approach to marketing. Yep. And but and people know know this. They're they're on to onto it. Especially it. with all the digitally native brands. I did it in two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I know. But you know, a lot of people also can a lot of people not a lot, but I would say there are people who feel backlash to that too. Who say, right. you know what, I don't want to be friends with a brand. Well exactly. I want my product. I want it shipped when I ordered it mm-hmm. and I want it at Amazon speed. Mm-hmm. And in, yeah, the whole the idea of storytelling, like I'm not really buying into it, even if I am a fan of the brand. So as a, you know, how do you, and I think that's where the authenticity question comes mm-hmm. in. It's, it's how, do, how do you solve for that? I think if you have a legitimate brand story and you weave that through everything you do, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. And I think that we know all those brand stories, right? Mm -hmm. We know Warby Parker's story. We Mm -hmm. know Everlane's story. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some stories that are probably less known. Like people probably don't know that Stacey Bendett started Alice and Olivia because she made her own pair of pants that a buyer saw her rollerblading around LA in and mm-hmm. order 20 pairs, you know? Right. But those are authentic stories that when they do come out, you're like, oh, that's really cool. It's, you know, entrepreneurial. Um, but if you're going to sit there and make up a story, um, I think you better be a really good storyteller because people see through that. Mm-hmm. And so in, in terms of the brand story, what, if, what do you do if you don't have one then? Or if you don't have a compelling one. Do you think that's there why a lot of There has to be a reason that the brand was started. Yeah. And I think it's about digging deep. And listen, over the years at Donna Karen, we used to have exercises like off-sites where we'd go back and really uncover and dig through archives and think about the reason for being and mm-hmm. why did Donna start it. And every brand has a reason for being. Every brand started because there was either a void in the market or someone was inspired by something. Mm-hmm. So- I don't think there's a scenario in which there's not a brand story. I think it's just how you articulate it. Right. Some brands are just not as good as at drawing on it than others. Yeah. And listen, I mean, some brands don't need to, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon doesn't need to have a brand story. Mm-hmm. Amazon is known for speed right. and customer experience. 
So what are your thoughts on Amazon? I mean, listen, I think there is not one person in the world who doesn't use Amazon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is by far and away the biggest search engine in the world. Um, I'm pretty sure that's a fact. I think it is bigger than Google right now. I think for, for retail. Yeah, yes. for retail. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I think there is no brand story there. It mm-hmm. is completely utility. You need something, you search it, you buy it. So you definitely lose brand equity by being on there. Do you think at the same time, so do you think it's just blanket case, uh, that lack sort of mutes out the brand story if you are selling on Amazon? Or do you think it could even provide a blank slate for the brand to tell its own story within that Amazon ecosystem? Or are they not doing enough to to give brands the chance to to even do that? I think, actually I should say, I know, um, because I know a lot of people at Amazon, their priority is customer experience. Mm-hmm. So if you're a brand and you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to sell on Amazon, but I want to, you know, I want to talk to them about setting up guardrails, right? I want my own little shop. You are creating friction for the customer. So they they don't want to do anything that is going to deter the customer from finding and discovering what they set out to. Mm-hmm. So as a brand, you are sort of coming up, you know, you type in little black dress to Amazon you're going to get hundreds of little black, black dresses. Some of them are going to be, you know, $20 and some of them could be $300. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if your brand is not comfortable sort of with the company it keeps, then Amazon's probably not the place for you. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that especially contemporary luxury, luxury fashion has the, do you think they still have the weight to say, okay, well, then we're not going to sell on Amazon and we'll be fine? Or, or do you think eventually everyone's going to get swept in? I really believe that brands can stay on their own. Mm-hmm. I do. I think when you talk about luxury brands, first of all, there's, there's a, a consumer and sales element to this where most luxury brands also have brick and mortar. So there is an element of humanity happening when you walk into a store and someone asks you, what you're shopping for, is there an occasion, and and brings you ideas from a, from a personal shopping perspective, you're not getting that online. I don't mm-hmm. care how good your AI is or your BI, whatever letters you want to throw at me right now. I, I, I just think it's, it's just not there. And I think, you know, similar to people who get overwhelmed when they go into a department store when there's just too many choices, I think that there's something to be said for a curated experience. And I think that's why people love Net-A-Porter, right? Mm-hmm. It's curated. People love Farfetch because it's curated. Um, you know, there is probably going to be your brand on Amazon from third-party sellers that you need to police. And mm-hmm. I think that they should be policed because at the end of the day, how your brand is presented in that space is really important. And I think to maintain the level of luxury a brand wants to have in their own e-com sites or in their brick and mortar, they do need to control distribution because if you are everywhere, then you're not as special. Mm-hmm. And I, it almost seems like I, we could see it, and, and this came up as well, This uh, it's like a circle back to the more traditional department store, like if they're able to bring back like the the experience that people actually want to shop there, it's you know, maybe it's not full blown Amazon level, but it's enough to compete and, and, and survive and actually do well in the Amazon new ecosystem. Mm-hmm. 
do you see brands almost returning back to trusting those wholesale partners? We have amazing wholesale partners. I, you know what I think? I think people want their time back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where Amazon wins. So if brands can figure out how to give, it's not even like, I don't want a glass of champagne. You know, I don't need any experience from a store Mm. other than speed of getting me what I want when I want it. And I think if brands, whether direct-to-consumer brands or brands that work with wholesale accounts, if everyone can collectively figure out how they can get to the consumer faster, smarter, and better, then they will be able to compete in their niche against Amazon because that's what everyone loves about Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that you're like, oh my God, the product on Amazon is so amazing. It's the breadth of it and it's the speed at which you get it. Right. And I think we're seeing that first there was the, the direct-to-consumer brands that thought they didn't need a store because of the internet. Now they're in store, but they and they seem to think that they're reinventing the store experience, but they're they're not. I don't know. You you go there on a when it, right when it opens, and maybe they have these little extras like added into the in store experience. And then you go there a month later, and it's just a fitting room is a mess, and there's lines everywhere, and it's the same old retail. Right. So I right. it just seems like you know how do we sort of get past that? Like what is experience when we talk about the store? Like where is that going? What what do people want from it? I think, you know, great experience is when the store, the brand, the salesperson knows who you are, knows your taste, knows what size you are, Mm. whether this is created in an offline experience or an online experience and is able to recommend pieces to you that they know you're going to be interested in Mm -hmm. and that will suit your lifestyle and your figure. Mm -hmm. And I think that is achievable online too um, with the right technology. It seems Um, like it's almost even harder in person unless you're super boutique niche high high end luxury where people where you have like the, you know the client list <laughs> yeah but you know if you walk into a department store you can you can get help that way you can say to someone hey i have a wedding coming mm-hmm. up i really want something that's off the shoulder mm-hmm. i mean they should be able to sort of curate your your dressing room experience for you right they should but but it's true i mean i i do agree that people who are sort of native online brands who are sort of really proud that they were sort of born digital have moved over to the dark side Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. um, by creating brick and mortar because at the end of the day, I think think the mix is what makes success. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think that you, you know, Warby Parker is an amazing example of an incredibly successful online brand that has incredibly successful brick and mortar. And it's nothing to be ashamed about. Right. You can do both. Right. Of course. I think the it's it's funny because I feel like everyone's kind of backtracked on the need for a store. It, I, I don't know about wholesale, though. It seems like, okay, maybe they'll send a, sell a Nordstrom. Maybe they'll sell a few pieces to, to Net-A-Porte if they are at that price level. But I think the return to wholesale, it will be a big moment of reckoning if the retailers can prove that, okay, this is a place where your brand is safe again. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because wholesale has other issues to it, right? Which I think is the markdown issue. Yep. And I think that that is a beast that has been created. I kind of almost feel like it just got way worse in 2008, like right after 2008. And it's hard to backpedal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now brands are faced with having to sort of coordinate all those sale days and making sure that everyone's sort of pulling the trigger on the same day, um, which is unfortunate. But 
you know, people still love going into a multi-brand store. And I think that, you know, I mean, I would rather not. I'd rather buy online Mm -hmm. and return uh, if it doesn't fit. But some people enjoy the experience of shopping that way. Mm -hmm. And... so when we when we look at that experience going forward, I know you guys do some shop like shop in shops mm-hmm. at wholesalers. Do you think that that's gonna kind of maybe be the next step of where this is headed? Because then you have more control yeah. within that setting. So we have um, we have both traditional wholesale accounts, and then we have some concession. Mm-hmm. And concession is just like you, it's a vertical retail store. You run it the same way that you run your regular Alice and Olivia stores, and you know, they're both successful, I have to say. I mean, I think, you know, we're concession at Bloomingdale's because collectively um, we decided with Bloomingdale's that this would be like a really interesting way to sort of test the brand. And because, listen, at the end of the day, no one's going to know how to buy the brand better than the brand. No one's going to know how to buy the brand better than the brand right. and the you creative an director. Ass- assortment inventory. I think the assortment is what, people go people really um, sort of admire because you know we happen to have 11 deliveries per year mm-hmm. so we're changing over product constantly and it's it's a lot and you know there there is a talent to it and our buyers are extremely um, extremely in touch with what our customers want from mm-hmm. those deliveries so you know sort of lending that knowledge to a, a traditional wholesaler um, has proven successful but on the flip side you know you can have amazing buyers at Saks who know how to buy the line and can do equally well there so I think it's like media mix right it's Mm -hmm. like you need a mix of everything Mm -hmm. and so we're almost out of time but before you go what do you what's the biggest myth you think is happening taking hold of retail right now what is everyone talking about that you think is not I think the biggest myth is that retail is dead I don't think retail is dead. Mm-hmm. You mean physical retail? Physical or? retail. Physical retail. Um, I don't think it's dead. I think people still like going into stores. I think that brands have to figure out how to make it easier for customers to experience physical retail. And that can be done through technology. That can be done through personal shopping. That can be done through a myriad of different ways. But I think that there are ways to do it successfully. And mm-hmm. You know, listen, at the end of the day, we can all be scared about, you know, what's happening in retail and fashion and brands are sort of going out of business and et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you know, there is an evolution over time where, you know, brands that filled voids, you know, 20 years ago are no longer necessary because times have changed and then Mm -hmm. there's new ones popping up. But you know what? At the end of the day, I know one thing. We're not going to be naked. Right. <laughs> it's going to be fine. I think, yeah, I think we can trust that that's true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and stores may keep closing, but that's that's a that's a natural or, evolution. Or smart, stores will smart size. Mm-hmm. You right. know, right. no longer that's do you need happening. the 10,000 square mm-hmm. foot store. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need something that's super tiny and it's just for you go in and view it, you know, 
on huge LED screens and then it gets shipped to you. Or there's just one of everything and you feel and touch it, but then they order your size. I don't know, but there's a lot of ways to do it. <laughs> right. We'll see. We're, we're waiting to see where it all goes. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you. Great. And thank you for listening. A special thanks to Diddy Songwell, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have. 